You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Good morning, everybody. It's a real pleasure to welcome everybody in and to welcome Front Row into the RSA this morning. Um, obviously, the clue is in our name, the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, that we're big, passionate believers in the power of arts and the power of artists, uh, particularly to help us think about how we deal with uncertainty, how we imagine the world and reimagine it. And at this point in time, when there's uncertainty coming from all quarters, um, it's really helpful to, to hear, to listen to artists and to think about their powerful role in helping us understand what we might want to do next. Um, so it, I'm going to hand over to John Wilson and his guests in a couple of seconds, but really just to, uh, to say thank you very much for coming this morning and, uh, and to welcome you once again to the RSA. Yes, hello and welcome to a special edition of Front Row in which we'll debate the cultural response to Brexit. We'll hear from television producer Phil Redmond, who masterminded Liverpool's tenure as European capital of culture. Novelists Val McDermott and Drida Say Mitchell are here, as is the designer Wayne Hemingway, actor and director Samuel West joins us. He chairs the National Campaign for the Arts. And Rufus Norris, the Artistic Director of the National Theatre, is also with us, as is an audience at the Royal Society of Arts. We're in, uh, we're in the historic Great Room here at the RSA, which has hosted debates and demonstrations for over 250 years, around the walls just above our heads. Uh, there's a series of frieze paintings by the 18th century Irish artist James Barry, uh, featuring the likes of uh, William Shakespeare, Chaucer, Christopher Wren, uh, Rubens, Reynolds and many more. This room hosted the very first public exhibition of contemporary art and the first public exhibition of photography, Alexander Graham Bell demonstrated the telephone here, here in this room in 1877 and people heard a phonograph recording for the first time uh, the following year. All of these great cultural leaps allowed new ways for people to communicate and make sense of the world. And it's in that spirit that we've come to the RSA this morning to hear how the cultural landscape might shift and uh, resettle in the years ahead after the seismic events of recent weeks. Britain is heading out of the European Union, so how can artists, producers, writers and others in the creative industries make sense of Brexit to help navigate a fractured social landscape and to create new narratives? Will we become uh, perhaps less European culturally? Does Brexit offer an opportunity for artists to mine deeper into the rich vein of Britishness? And could the vote to leave the EU help inspire and galvanise a younger generation of artists. Phil Redman, let me start with you. You once told stories about social and domestic struggle via the microcosm of Brookside Close, of course, many years ago. And you led, as, you men- as I mentioned, Liverpool's um, year as European capital of culture. That was 2008. Does Brexit offer an artistic opportunity for Britain? Um... Yeah, well, I think just going back to your, your own introduction there, it's just a reminder that we existed before the European Union uh, and we'll, we'll exist after it. So, I mean, the question is really, we're not really sure are we, what the changes are going to be, but it is going to be change. But if you go back to Dickens, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, the age of reason and the age of foolishness. I think, um, I think there's probably an opportunity there, you know, uh, because... Uh, it's probably time anyway across our cultural landscape that we did start to take a look back at the UK itself. It's, we've got a lot of big cultural changes going on across the UK. The kind of things that we used to do in uh, Brookie, and we touched on Grange Hill Hollyoaks, 
And now I've actually, I haven't actually stopped. I'm not still, I'm not really used to be yet. I've, I'm now doing it in novels, you know. But I think um, from the European Capital of Culture 2008, um, I mean, just a couple of bold statistics. In 2008, um, we got the European Capital of Culture. Everybody assumed that Europe gave us a lot of cash. They didn't. They were supposed to give us 600,000 euros to help print the new letterheads and things, which I don't think it ever arrived. So the city did it all itself with mainly non-central government funding and private funding. But out of that, you know, was a renaissance of the city. And what we did is use culture and art to remind everybody in the city who and what we were. We were at one time both the richest and the most culturally vibrant city in the world, you know, at the turn of the the 19th century. And 10 years on now, uh, the European funding stream up to 2020 from 25 years has delivered about £100 million a year to the city region. The visitor economy now, this year, has doubled from 2008 to £4 billion a year. Right, so that can-do attitude that you're talking about that can be applied to other urban centres in Britain, and it's urban centres. Yeah, take the caveat that the European funding helped sort of reinvigorate the city, but it was culture that actually focused everybody within the city and made them rediscover who they were, you know. And so that £4 billion a year now dwarfs... The, it's actually been reduced now to £33 million a year from Europe. And that's gone up, i say, double since 2008. And it's still driving, and it's all cultural arts-driven. Really. Right, OK. Um, Val McDermott, uh, best-selling crime writer, of course, who's sold more than 10 million books around the world. And, and, and Val, you voted for Scottish independence from the UK, but for the UK to remain part of the EU. Is this a new opportunity, as far as you're concerned, um, to define what it means to be... Scottish through art and and literature in your case? Well, actually, that's what we've been doing in Scotland for the last 40 years. Uh, After the first devolution referendum in the late 1970s, Scotland started to look at itself very closely and to think about who we are in the modern world. For too long, we defined ourselves oppositionally, we said, we're not the English. And now we started to look at ourselves in different terms about who are we, What are our aspirations? What kind of country do we want to be? What kind of people do we see ourselves being in the 21st century and beyond? And what it turned out to be is that we've we've moved away quite drastically from the old Braveheart nationalism of pounding our chest and saying, we're Scottish, to a much more civic nationalism, which is about saying, if you choose to come here and cast your lot in with us, we will welcome you, we will make you part of us. And a lot of that discussion has happened within the world of the arts. It's happened in drama, it's happened in literature. And I think one of the reasons why Scottish crime fiction has come from nowhere to be so vigorous is that the crime novel in particular lends itself very well to the exploration of social circumstances, of social realism. But that's not to say that other writers in Scotland haven't also been doing these kind of things, asking these kind of questions. You have Alistair Gray's Lanark kicking off one whole school of thought. And then you have novels like James Robertson's And the Land Lay Still, which is essentially an examination of what it means to be Scottish and to believe in Scotland moving forward. And I suggest that this is an opportunity for the rest of the UK to do something similar, to think about who we are, to remake those myths. We don't have to accept the historic myths of who we are. You know, 
You're absolutely right, Phil. Before there was the EU, we, there was Britain. But Britain didn't stand alone as an island. Britain had its, its, its support came from the colonies. The raw materials came from the colonies. We used their labour. We used their raw materials. We sent our products back out into the world. We weren't this tiny little inward-looking island state. And I think this is a chance for artists to help us to explore who we are in an outward-looking way as well as an inward-looking way. Yeah, well, let's hear from your fellow crime writer, Drida Say Mitchell, as well. And Drida, born to Caribbean pair, grew up on, on an estate in, in uh, London's East End, trained as a teacher, worked in education. Drida, you voted leave in the referendum and in a way going against the grain politically uh, of the artistic, the British artistic community. Do you think that artists fail to properly represent the concerns of many people, the majority even, uh, about life in Britain? I think I would challenge, first of all, this definition of going against the grain of the British um, artistic community because it's who we decide are the community. I'll tell you what happened to me this morning. I came here, I arrived bright and early. I said, I'm here for front row. And what I was told was the audience it starts at nine o'clock. So the immediate perception is, here I am as a black woman, I'm here as an audience member. I can't be somebody here to talk about absolute, to talk about culture. And I think, for me, that's the biggest thing that has come out of the referendum, is we keep talking about our narrative with Europe, our narrative with the world. The biggest thing that has come out is us having to look back at our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to, to being British... And, you know, for me, one of the biggest things in culture that has been talked at for years and years is this whole thing about access and diversity. And I actually think those are pretty words for discrimination. Why is it in Britain that lots of different groups actually aren't represented, represented at the top? So for here we are at the RSA in London. And I would suggest that we're not a representative group of the people who, who live in London. I don't think the panel is a representative group of people who, who live in Britain. And for me, you see, the, the big issues... Of, sorry? I used to be. You used to be. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, we, we're so fixated on that the EU did amazing things for us. But actually, we've got some big issues in this country to do with culture... And if we're really determined to move forward, it's about looking in on ourselves and actually moving those things forward. And one I want to move forward is this notion, and let me use the pretty words of access and diversity. Mm. And uh, we're going to come on to that later in the programme, but let me throw some of those points to to Samuel West, known for uh, film and television dramas, of course, but a former artistic director of Sheffield Theatres and currently chair of the National Campaign for the Arts. Um, Sam, many creative people in Britain talked about being shocked by the results of, of the referendum. But surely, if the publicly funded arts exist to give voice to the nation as a whole, it shouldn't really have been a big surprise to artistic people. Well, I think a vast majority of people, about 96% of those polled, which may not be representative, as Trader says, but a vast majority of those polled wanted to remain. Collaboration and connection are our bread and butter, and that's why many people are mourning. But I think for the rise of xenophobia in this country, the fear of the strange, we absolutely must take responsibility. We all must. We know, contrary to that, that the, that the fear of xenophobia, the, the, the acceptance of the strange is greatest in areas where integration is greatest. And by contrast, somewhere like Sunderland, which has an immigration population of 3%, tiny by national standards, 
voted 61% to leave. Now, if globalization's losers feel ignored and threatened and scapegoat and dehumanize the other, outsiders who they blame for those feelings, then artists absolutely must be there to help explore that frustration. That, those connections, that kindness is, is, is muscular, it's strong, it's worth doing. We can and we must do that. I think we are allowed to worry about where in society those artists are going to come from and where the money to support them will come from. Yes, and, and what might stimulate them, what might inspire them. Let me just, because we've got a lot to cover, and let me just move it on Wayne Hemingway, um, Wayne designer who started the, uh, the Red or Dead label. Uh, famously on a street market, it's now uh, a global brand. But, but Wayne, you started in, in, in the 80s in politically charged times. Great art and creativity can, of course, thrive, often does thrive in times of, of great political and social change, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, we've been dealt two massive um, sow's ears. You know, one, one of them, I believe, one of the sow's ears is the fact that we're leaving Europe or leaving the EU. Another one is, is the fact that we, that we have such a divided society. Uh, and both, but both of them, um, we've got to, we've got, we have to take something positive from it. You know, there's, there's, we can't go, go around in mourning for, for very long. And, and the creative industries are brilliant at turning sow's ears um, into silk purses that that that's that that's what we do and if you look but but it's going it's going to take some 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 form of revolution and you look at what creativity did the most exciting times of creativity for me so i was lucky enough to be at the right age for punk in in 1975 and 76 and without that i would not have um been able to me and my wife would not have been able to create our first business holiday, which we sold by the way 18 years ago. It mm. is old news, that by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we would never have been able to create that. We wouldn't have, you know, Camden Market would have never reached the stages that it did. There wouldn't have been, you know, the, the vibrancy of Kensington Market without all of that, and Affleck's Palace in Manchester, and, and Quiggins in Liverpool, and, and the Corn Exchange in Leeds, and all, and all of that. It was a youth quake. Uh, if, if you if you look back, and, and the same happened in in the late. 80s and the 90s that the rave culture was born out of police oppression um, uh, you know a government that was stopping people having fun uh, and in the 50s rock and roll c- came out and everything that came out of the, and, the, and the festival of Britain and all of that that came out of the great design and the, and the, and the youth quake of the 50s yeah. came out of a, a second world war of, 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 and so I actually think I actually think we will solve this uh, and, but I think it will be a youthful rebellion of sorts that does it. Not, not going to the streets and rioting uh, like the poll tax, but, but, I think, but I think, oh, maybe it will happen that. Yeah, but yeah. I think there will be a, a, a massive rebellion at the moment. Well, I, I want to bring in some more artists who, who are in the audience because the policymakers are conspicuous by their absence in this debate, and, and we've done that on purpose. Um, we know that one of the, the key uh, vote-leave hotspots in Britain was the northeast of England. Two artists who, who grew up in Newcastle are the Turner Prize-nominated uh, Sisters Jane and Louise Wilson. Um, were you surprised, first of all, Louise? Well, I have to say, um, Newcastle did vote to remain just by As a small a city. Ma- Yes, yeah. by a small margin, but they did revo- uh, vote to remain. But actually, um, in a way, growing up in the Northeast, as we did and studying there in the 80s, you kind of, um, you know, we were growing up in a sort of Thatcher period, in a sense, and at a time when, a lot of the, you know, there, there was a vibrancy in London. There was kind of clearly, you know, serious sort of uh, uh, cuts in the, in the Northeast, which is still continued. But having said that, we came out of a great... 
um, group of artists who are now, you know, Turner Prize winners, international curators, you know, gallery directors. So, you know, there was a great context there in a way, even despite the fact that, you know, there was um, little sort of funding for the arts. And I just sort of think now, you know, you've got museums like the Baltic in Gateshead, you've got MIMA in uh, Middlesbrough, and, you know, they've had to be inventive and creative in the way that they think about sustaining themselves now. I mean, you look at something like uh, MIMA in Middlesbrough and they've merged with Teesside University in order to sustain themselves. Yeah, that's the cultural infrastructure. Just talk about the the mindset, if you will. I think it's quite striking. You emerged and other artists emerged at a time and it's often looked back on as as Britart, as Cool Britannia, that kind of idea. But the irony, of course, is so much of the art that you and your peers were making was was informed by a European sensibility, wasn't it? It wasn't particularly British. Well, I mean, we were very fortunate in 1996 to be invited to go to Berlin. Berlin. It was a great opportunity because basically it meant you lived in Berlin, you studied there, you also met and saw other artists, you had a free studio, you kind of spent a whole year there and it was a very, um, you know, it was a very uh, huge experience for us to have that but also to be able to feel that, you know, this is something that was available to you coming from the northeast, coming from where we were but also to have that ability to cross over and to be in Berlin and to study uh, and to have a residency. So it was a, a big a big part of how we developed as artists. Yeah, let, let me just throw, Louise, just for a moment, let me just throw that back to, to Samuel West, because uh, at a time when Jane and Louise emerged, Sam, it was a, a time uh, politically, economically of, of optimism, wasn't it? Uh, I mean, you had a new government, you had huge streams of lottery money coming on for the first time, underpinning many of the arts organisations. Do you think that British art will lose some of its swagger? I think it might well have to turn um, inwards uh, in some circumstances. Um, we should, I would love to see artists taking responsibility to make what they do more representative of the, of the communities around them, um, especially in areas that voted out. But I don't know whether all artists will be psychologically able to reach out, whether the closing in of itself on our culture will make people... Um, withdraw into a sort of inner emigration. Yeah, well, who, let's who put say? that point to one of our writers here, Rita Say Mitchell, just a, a quick point. And I know you work with young, younger writers as well, and you're getting a sense of encouraging them, in, yeah, a sense yeah. of, of what they want to write about. And I think if we're talking about young people, we have to talk about education in this country, and we have to talk about what's happening with the arts and the creative curriculum in education and what's happening at the moment it's been sidelined, it's been made to feel like it's actually a hobby so we have to think about are we going to have that growth of artists kind of coming through, when I was growing up, it was the days, I don't know if people remember, Ilia days in a London Education Authority I have my three brothers and my sister we all took musical instruments home, this sense of Every child should have a musical instrument was a real big mantra of Ilya. So I do think the, the political um, kind of society we're living will also be affecting what we're doing. Yeah, quick word yeah. from Val, and then I want to hear from I, Wayne I do, as well. I do think that those of us in the cultural industries have to take some responsibility for the fact that there is this huge stratum of disaffected people. It's clear that a lot of the people who voted to leave the EU did so as a protest vote because they felt dispossessed, because they felt disregarded. Now, it seems to me that in the 1980s, when when we were dealing with Thatcherism, there was a a popular groundswell. It was kind of that post-punk thing that you were talking about there, Wayne. And people articulated 
those feelings. They, they had a way of coming through and expressing those views. But it seems to me that as, as artists, maybe in the last 10 years or so, we've kind of ignored that fact. We've ignored the rise of things that we're uncomfortable with. Mm. So we've let that build up and not have any release, not have any way of expressing themselves. So perhaps through, you know, at, at least through popular media, we need to address these things. We need to make people feel that they have a voice within the culture. And I think to some degree we have failed to do that. And that is one of the challenges that faces us now in terms of trying to reintegrate as a, as a society. Quick, quick word yeah, from yeah, Wayne Going Hemingway. back to your question about will it affect the industry, a lot of people don't understand. People think it's a Cinderella industry. We're talking about the arts. But look at, look at the figures. You know, in, in 2014, it was $84.1 billion to the economy with the creative industries. It's, it's the second biggest driver of the economy. One in ten people in this country are employed in it. And, it, and, and, and year, the, the, it's got the biggest increase in exports at 8.9%. And what you've got is, you know, you, you've, you've worked in, Louise and the Wilsons have worked in, worked in Berlin. And we were, Britain has been seen as the preeminent creative nation, bar none in the world. We've been, suddenly, people in Berlin, which is an amazing city, pe- people in Brooklyn, in New York, people in Johannesburg are rubbing their hands together, thinking, all of a sudden, Britain is devalued. And we are devalued. And, and you look at the numbers of people that are thinking of relocating to Berlin. I think I would, I would, I've seen some figures to show that more people are thinking about relocating to Berlin with their businesses than are thinking to go to Manchester. Yeah. I just want to bring in another opinion. And, and Phil Redman, I'm going to come back to you because um, let, let's look at... Uh the example of the, of the National Theatre here, because perhaps one of the most um, surprising lessons of, of the referendum was that Britain is a more divided place uh, than many people realised or cared to contemplate. And there's a lot of anger and resentment across a broad range of issues from health and education to unemployment and, and immigration. So, so do the national cultural institutions need to realign their antennae uh, to detect and, and possibly transmit a broader range of British experiences? Rufus Norris... Artistic Director of the National Theatre is here with us. And is that a concern for you, Rufus, now in the coming years, to refocus the storytelling, to, to better reflect Britain today at the National Theatre? Yeah, I think so. I think um, art always responds to the time. I think, um, and this has been a, a huge wake-up call for, uh, for all of us to realise that half the country, as Val says, feel that they have no voice. Uh, if we're going to be a national organisation, we've got to speak to and for the nation... And in this, in this moment, I think our principal responsibility initially is to listen, mm. uh, to listen to that voice. And, 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 you know, art will follow from that. We're an art house, we're a theatre, we're going to be making work. Um, quite what the form of that work will be, we will discover. But the content of it, I think, has got to start with getting out there. We're starting a, a project. Almost as soon as the vote had come in, we initiated a, um, a nationwide project to get out having one-to-one conversations, a listening project, really, all over the country, people from all backgrounds and uh, all, you know, all persuasions, um, just to find out what, what, you know, what are British values, what are your values, what do you think about where you live and, and what is the, the kind of Britain that you want to live in. And that's something that the National Theatre hasn't been doing up till now. I mean, do you think we will, increasingly, on the stage of the National Theatre, being, will we be hearing those voices reflected better that's the intention, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think many writers, you know, a lot of the writers that we work with come from all over the country, come from all over the world. And they've, you know, and they've no doubt been the, the, the kind of the voices of their, of their regions. But I think that there's no question about the fact that we as an arts community 
have been surprised by this and, uh, and consequently I think we, we've got to reflect that we're slightly out of touch with part of with the, with the way that, that much of the country is feeling. So the short-term plan is to listen and then plan rather to impose a new set of policies and ideas. It's not going to be a new season of, of British plays then at the National Theatre. No, I, I, you know, it'd be very easy for us to, um, for us to give our opinions on what's been going on and, th- and that, that, at its worst, just becomes another version of me and my mates. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, Phil Redman, I know you wanted to come in, but just let me throw that point back to you, because in 2008, I spent a lot of time with you in Liverpool, and what was very impressive there, when you were hosting European Capital of Culture, you had the big organisations working, but also a lot of grassroots organisation, and we heard a lot of the people's voices. It was very much, you, you said, it was the people of Liverpool who won that bid, and they were sort of innately European in, in, in that way. Um, do you think the creative community has, fa- has failed to reflect that full, diverse range of, of opinions and voices? Um, I think, no, that's, that's too easy to say, really, because we, we all operate within a bigger construct. And I think, uh, I think what's always missing from these debates, and when you were talking earlier about the vibrancy of the 70s and 80s and things, what everybody forgets is the massive explosion of the media, you know, that happened towards the end of the 60s, 70s, into the 80s. And what you had there was a uh, doubling, tripling of the exhibition space for people and their ideas and things. And, for example, the Turner Prize would not be the Turner Prize without Channel 4. You know. And what's happened there since the 80s, and actually since the 1990 Broadcasting Act, is media and television being the dominant form has retreated more and more to London. Yeah. You know. And then London gets engaged with the national international debates. Politicians also then retreat to London, and that's where we find the root of disconnect. I mean, I'll say this because, I mean, the professorship in front of my name is all attached to media studies. And although everybody keeps talking about it the way they do about sociology in the 70s, which I'm also a sociologist, but um, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's true. Because if we cannot talk to each other, and that great BBC thing, nation until nation, well, it should really be flicked back to region, or should talk to region. Now, today, for example, I mean, why aren't we all talking in Salford, you know? Or if you can't quite make Salford, what about Birmingham, you know? Or actually go to the most easiest place in the world to get to, which is Crewe. Right, but that is that is the plan, though, Phil. I mean, watch this space. Front row will be taking this debate around the country. I mean, I hear. But let me just throw it back to you because I mean, you talked about being professor of media studies and all that. But I mean, a lot of people still think of you as the man who started Brookside. What about the role of the soaps? A lot of people would say that the soaps on television—that's the real national theatre. You're sitting next to uh, Sam West, whose father Timothy West recently been in in EastEnders. The role of the soaps in telling the story of what has happened, what might happen. That's why I'm used to be in soaps. Because I got out of it because it was becoming too difficult to actually tell these kind of stories. Stories about diversity, about access. I mean, it's, and that's not just about race or creed. That is about social position, you know. And it's the fact that now, if you talk about education, I mean, since the, since the 1870 Education Act, we've still not solved the problem of literacy in this country. Mm. And we have more people, we have more people illiterate and sort of looking for work amongst our young people, then we have migrants, you know. And so there's, there's an imbalance there somewhere, you know. And that, again, perhaps as culture we failed, but you have to have the exhibition platform. You have to have the space to make these arguments, to put these cases, and get the debate out there and have it looked at properly. Val McDermott. I think one of the problems that we face at the moment is the urgency of this situation. We really didn't expect to be here, so in a sense we hadn't been thinking about it 
very seriously very much for very long. In Scotland, we've had the luxury of a long time to have this debate among ourselves. When you were doing the City of Culture, you had a few years capital to of plan. Culture, actually. Sorry, capital of culture, yeah. sorry. It's, sorry. Probably actually, it's probably actually going to be the one and only European capital of culture the UK's ever had. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry, that? I'm grovelling. I'm grovelling. <laughs> I love Liverpool. It's a wonderful, wonderful city. It's an astonishing, beautiful skyline. It deserves its world heritage status. Yeah, Come on, that was 2008. <laughs> We've moved on. We like but, you too. But I think the, the, the challenge here is, I mean, you had time to plan. And we had time to think about this in Scotland. What's happened now is we're faced with this situation and we've got to respond quickly. We've actually got to hit the ground running, I think. It's all well and good to be listening, and, and heaven knows we should be listening because for a lot of the time we've not been listening, but we need to act quickly on this. We can't, we've not got the luxury of sitting around for the next 40 years figuring out how we're going to respond. Yeah, let me just throw this back to Rufus Norris briefly. And just on a practical level, as somebody who's running an organisation, are we going to see fewer... European theatre companies coming to the national or European dance companies or European musicians because of, you know, and I'm talking about the logistical administrative difficulties that might arise. No, I don't think so at all. I mean, I think, you know, there are difficulties and we don't quite know what they're going to be yet, but I think this has also been a, a catalyst, I mean, certainly for us to, to up that. We're, we, you know, we are a, we're a world leader, as, uh, you know, as people on the panel have pointed out. Particularly Wayne was talking about this in in the creative industries and in culture, and we're not going to give up the, that position. I think, I think this, you know, for us anyway, is going to spur uh, an increase in our, in our collaborations with European partners uh, and our international work. It's that, you know, being isolated is bad for a culture and is very, very bad for a society, and there's no way we're going down that path. I'm not being a bit, a bit polite about all of this, really. Mm. You know, because what we haven't... Yes, yes of course, uh, lots of towns need way better infrastructure. They need, need more equality when it comes to access to arts. They need more equality when it comes to access to employment and, and public transport. The town that I'm from, Blackburn, and the town of my wife's from, Burnley, when you look at public transport and you look at, and you look at how... They have... You, know, you, you, you mentioned that, um, that three, Sunderland has 3% immigration. Blackburn and Burnley have 33%, and th but they voted 66%, 66% to leave. So it isn't, there isn't a correlation between between that at all. It, there's, there's something much deeper than that. But, we've all, but we also haven't talked about the fact that the majority, the vast majority of young people who are the people who take this world one. forward and Britain forward voted to stay. Mm. Uh, yeah. and, and, and over the next few years, you know, a lot of the people who, who, who voted to leave will play a, lower, a smaller role in society. That's, that's called ageing. You know, that, that's what happens. And the younger people who voted to remain will come into their prime. And, and we, we mustn't all just be polite, thinking we've got to be polite now. It's happened. We've got to fight. Well, you, you brought the subject up, Wayne, and let's hear from a, a couple of young artists who are here alongside Rufus Norris in the front row. We've got uh, George the Poet, who is um, Brit-nominated rapper, writer. And, uh, I mean, as, as Wayne is alluding to there, the majority of people, 18 to 25-year-olds, voted to remain. Do you hope that young people, young artists, creatively-minded young people, will feel galvanised by what's happened? Um, I know that young people are galvanised by what happened, but uh, as I think Deidre mentioned, there are um, a, a number of issues that are compounded. First of all, um, at 25 years of, of age, personally, the, the minute I got a vote, there was a recession. 
<laughs> and then after that, there was a government, there was a coalition government that tripled um, education fees, uh, made a lot of things difficult for young people. Yeah. And uh, since the policies of austerity have further um, challenged our progression in um, building a future for ourselves. Now, um, as again, Deidre said, the arts, if it's not taken seriously by the state and by non-state actors and society um, in general, becomes a secondary concern. Now, I'm also a child of hip-hop. I grew up listening to rap music, although, unlike you said, I'm not really a rapper. I'm actually a spoken word artist. Sure, yeah. um, the narrative of hip-hop was that it was birthed in uh, the uh, social economic conditions of Reaganomics in, uh, in New York. And what then happened was that uh, there was a, a, a big explosion of crack cocaine being sold in the slums, and that preceded uh, hip-hop music being... Uh, being birthed out of, again, an amalgamation of cultures, Jamaican immigrants with their sound systems and so on and so forth. Now, but it's I, think, out of I think that's too the big a price make... to pay. My point is, mm. the direction society is moving in um, will precipitate another uh, 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 wave of, of riots at some point. And I don't think it's, 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 it's um, something to be aspiring to that our young people are going to be uh, galvanized into really engaging with politics because they are, but it's not going to be what you want to see. Right. Well, I mean, hopefully there's not going to be riots. Let me just pass the mic to Anthony Anaxagaru, who's next to you, another poet. And, and Anthony, you're running uh, spoken word evenings, performance poetry uh, events. Uh, what about that as an outlet? And I suggested to George that there may be a sense of, of people feeling galvanised and energised because they haven't been listened to. Will that be reflected in the art form that you represent? I think all, I think all the time. I, we have to accept that art flourishes in times of conflict and in, and in times of tribulation. That's one of the great things about what we do here. I think the main problem that we have, though, is that culture is defined as this very singular thing. But we have to kind of see culture as being very multifaceted and massively subjective at the same time. Um, when we think about art, we have to ask ourselves, who is the art being made for? And, and, what, and what's its function? What's its purpose? So working with young people in schools, I've come to see how art can ameliorate a lot of these um, tensions that have been created by the current political climate. And I think it's within that that people want to come to see poetry, want to hear, but it's why they turn to art, because they look for some kind of solution, um, of some kind of solace from an understanding in a way that transcends the political, that transcends the strict rhetoric that you find from in Westminster and from the press houses. This is the most important thing, and I think to undermine that, which is essentially what has been happening over the last five to ten years, to undermine that, and even in, from an education perspective as well, to not invest in it fully, is to do a massive disservice to the people of an entire country. Those are very laudable, laudable ideals, and Drita, let me throw it back to you, because, I mean, what Anthony suggesting there is that the art serves some kind of social purpose in a way but I mean most art is made because people have something to say it's a, it's a means of personal expression they do it for themselves primarily don't they no and also you want people to watch it you know when I when I write my books I want lots of people to to buy my books but just to pick up on a couple of other points you know Wayne was talking about young people I find it really really rude when we start talking about older people as if they're already dead we're not dead we are still here we contributed to this society we helped make it what it was at the time and Val talked about um being shocked at the result I wasn't shocked at the results if you've got your ear to the grassroots floor you can hear what people are talking about so I suppose let me just leave a question if the arts 
community was so shocked, is the arts community out of touch? Uh, Wayne, are you feeling older today? Uh, Chastised and older? I might might actually be older than you. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I'm I'm 55 years old, and I I feel a bit of... bit of guilt on behalf of my generation. So we've created a generation that is, the, for the first time, empirically proved to be worse off than, than, than their parents. And, and that, that, is, that, to me, is turning the world upside down. And, and you know, you're supposed to leave the world a better place. For, you know, that's our job as, as elders. And we haven't done that for a generation. And yet, that generation didn't vote to leave. And in the same yeah. in the same way, oh, in the, so, sorry. Yeah, go on, Val. Go in the on. same way, in the Scottish referendum, it was the young people who most strongly voted to leave the UK, and I and I felt guilty on behalf of my generation. My my young son said when when uh, when he saw the results, he said, "Well, never mind, mum." He said, "Time's on your side." To leave the UK, <laughs> you're not part of Europe. Yes, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely yes. yes. Yeah. But yes. also, the turnout for young people was low. Well, that's, that's, that's disputed as well. Let's just move on from that. Phil Redmond. No, no, I think the, uh, the, the points you guys have made is quite valid. I mean, I think, but you've got to remember too that, you know, us old folks, like we've lived through our times of revolution and fear too. You know, I mean, you guys haven't uh, grown up with the nuclear winter hanging over your head every day, you know. But Liverpool is a place of revolution. And the fact that, you know, thinking about riots and revolution, 1982 in Liverpool was ripped apart by the riots as Bristol was, you know. And, you know, these things happen occasionally through society, you know, and if we think they're going to go away, they won't. I mean, 2011 was almost a a reflection of what happened in 1911. I mean, the term Bolshe Scouser comes from the fact that on the general strikes in 1911, you know, they they sent a gunboat up to Mersey to take out the Bolsheviks, you know. They actually shelled the town hall, but they missed but, you know, you know it's, these things happen in society all the time, but I don't think it's an age-youth thing because I think it's also it's a state of mind. And I don't believe that, you know, just because we've, there's a vote gone now, say we're leaving uh, the European Union, which is an administrative disaster. That's yeah. what we wanted to get rid of. Well, in 2008, the European artists were fantastic, but I couldn't buy a piece of carpet to keep Ringo safe on the roof of St George's Hall without going to, theoretically, a four-week European procurement process where we had to advertise it in the Athens Gazette. You know, right? And so that kind of nonsense we want to get to. And I think in five, ten years' time, Europe will have reformed and the young guys, when they come and take over the place, will actually then sort of form a new alliance. New We're not, as they keep saying all the time, we're not leaving Europe, you know. We're leaving the administrative bureaucratic process, you know. We're talking here, and I think the referendum may have shown us, a world in which most people think art is a luxury, an add-on, a hobby, it's not. It's essential for making sense of the tricky condition we call human. The world is enormously complicated. As we've been hearing now, people win or lose nowadays through no fault or agency of their own. That's what capitalism does. Art has to offer us a working model of what the world is, and it has to include shade, complexity, vagueness, change, all the other things we recognise as true and human. Otherwise, we get seduced by the binary, the simplistic stuff. Take back control. It's about immigration and everything. Norman Tebbit is wrong. You don't give up feeling British when you start to feel European. 
Cultural allegiance, sporting patriotism, it's not an either-or situation. It's much more nuanced, it's much more multiple. It doesn't work like that, and we mustn't be seduced by that binary. We're running out of time. We're going to have to head towards some concluding um, thoughts. Now, this is all highly speculative, I know, but let's get some predictions from our panellists about how Brexit might affect the British cultural landscape. Um, Trida, let me start with you. One single major cultural change that we might see when we look back at, at the last 10 years, in 10 years' times. When we look back in 10 years' time, the culture and the art that we're looking at will be much more representative of the Britain that we live in. In, in what way? Well, I'd like to see more black faces, more, more working-class um, types of art, more regional kind of representations. Because at the moment... You're talking about theatres, galleries, books, films... Yeah, everything, because I'm I'm worried that when we talk about this established art community, I think we're essentially talking about lots of people who live in in London and the South East, and it needs to be bigger than that. Val McDermott, how will things look differently in ten years' time? I hope we'll be galvanised into something that is more inclusive, but something that's also more outward-looking, and that it will take the form of something like the punk revolution or the rave revolution, and that we will have something that, that leaps forward... And in a generation's time, they'll be the establishment, as always happens. But for right now, what we need is something to galvanise us. And you think it will be some kind of uh, cultural moment? Yes. But again, that's dependent on young people, isn't it? As, well, it's as, not as, just as, dependent on young people. Older people still have something to say. I still feel like a young Turk. I don't think that my ideas have calcified just because I'm no longer in my 30s. I think that the, right across the board, we have things to contribute. It's not just about young people. Yeah. Uh, Wayne Hemingway, middle-aged and angry? Yeah. Well, well, yeah. We will definitely have a youth quake. You know, that, that is coming. We'll, we'll, I think we'll see young people more engaged in politics. Uh, and I, but I do think that we, we will look at... We will still remain European, uh, and we'll put two fingers up to the people who don't want us to remain European. We'll just find a new way of doing it. What, one of the ways that I will do it is, for the first time in my life, you know, I've never had a flag outside my house. The idea of having this flag of St George kind of has the wrong kind of connotations for me. But I'm going to put a European flag out my window. <laughs> a provocateur. Uh, uh, Phil Redmond. Um, well, I, I, I'm old enough now to I'll keep using that William Goldman misquote, which is nobody knows nothing. So we just don't know. We know the future's going to happen. We never know when it's going to arrive. But what I hope will happen is that, as we're beginning to see, London is realising that it no longer should be focused on looking to Europe. It should actually be focused on looking to the rest of the UK. And I think the big cities outside London will do what Liverpool's always done, which is go down to the banks of the shore and look out to the world and remember where they are. Samuel West, concluding thought very, very quickly, please. The big question is, what do we want the next generation to inherit? We have to defend the live, we have to defend free public spaces, places we can go to be without spending money. And I hope somebody makes a Cathy come home for immigration. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid. For now, my thanks to Phil Redmond, Val McDermott, Drida Say Mitchell, Wayne Hemingway, Samuel West, Rufus Norris, and all the other guests here in the great room of the Royal Society of Arts. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, thersa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.